Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Bud Hager to the podcast. Bud's daughter, Emma, began displaying signs of infantile spasms when she was six months old. Following a series of medical tests, Emma was diagnosed with pachygyria, a devastating and rare condition that affects 1,000 people in the United States. As the father of a medically complex child and a licensed therapist, Bud is here today to share his experiences, insights, and advice about the caregiver's journey. Bud, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited for this conversation. This just feels like such a treat because you and I uh, have been friends for years now, first meeting through social media and eventually getting to meet in person at Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland. In fact, I have to call out, I'm wearing my Wonder Woman t-shirt today. Um, years ago, I started a hashtag woman, Wonder Woman Wednesday for my daughter, Adelaide, and Bud, you have been amazing in keeping that tradition on with your daughter, Emma, and it just, it means the world to me to see those posts on Wednesdays. So that everyone else can get to know your incredible, vivacious, sassy Emma a little bit better, why don't you tell us about her? Yeah, well, um, Kelly, first off, a true, true honor um, to be here. I've been watching the podcast for a long time and one of those like dreamed I'll be on it one of these days and it's happening. So thank you and the team at Cure so, so much for having me on. Um, I, I mean, really, you took the words out of my mouth. She is vivacious and she is sassy. So um, and today we added a little extra flair. She lost her first tooth. So now she is vivacious, sassy and toothless. So <laughs> um, real exciting day for us. But um, Emma is six years old and some change. As far as her as a person, like you said, I mean, vivacious and sassy, she is willful. She is powerful. Um, there are moments where I wish her her energy was a little less, um, like at two in the morning. <laughs> but for the most part, that fighting spirit has been just so comforting for us, knowing that she is not going quietly into that good night. You know, that is something that um, pushes us forward. Um, outside of the the poetry, she loves um, classic rock music. We're actually on, uh, and now I realize this is not classic rock, but we're on a big Stevie Wonder kick uh, recently. The um, Songs in the Key of Life album is one of our favorites, so we're doing that. Um, walks outside, she loves looking at trees. She absolutely adores her mom. Um, I'm not sure who loves who more in that. So that's Emma as, as a person. Um, and then, as you know, uh, Emma is diagnosed with something called pachygyria, um, which comes with it a whole host of just a fun box of, of diagnoses and conditions. And one of the, the most serious being epilepsy. Now, you received Emma's diagnosis when she was six months old. What were some of the indications leading up to that? I'd like to say that I knew something was off from the beginning uh, because her um, her particular diagnosis is um, congenital, so it's something that has been there, you know, some before she was born. Um, but I think I was just sort of in that happy bliss phase of just like, no, she's you know fine. Uh, Maggie, on the other hand, Maggie, my wife, um, um, got the sense right around three months or so where she was like, mm, something feels different. 
And then around four or five months, we started seeing what we now know are infidel spasms. Um, movements um, that, you know, the jerking of the head, the jackknife um, positioning of the arms and that. Um, so that happened right around, you know, the beginning of five, her uh, five months old or so. And um, we were told it was colic. We were told it was gas. Um, and it actually, there was a uh, very heavy conversation with her pediatrician where she was having these motions in the office and Maggie was not taking no for an answer. She said, this is, this is not gas. You can't tell me this is gas. Um, and so uh, the pediatrician called the hospital. We set up a, a one-hour EEG for the next day. And straight from that one-hour EEG, we got admitted into um, into the hospital straight from there. As you know, you don't catch a lot on a one-hour EEG, but obviously it was plain enough that from that they knew um, something was happening. Um, outside of that, um, she the developmentally, there was a lot that... Again, looking back, um, she wasn't quite hitting those those milestones. She was always very happy and smiley, so we weren't concerned about that part. But eye contact wasn't there a lot. Um, she wasn't rolling. She wasn't sitting. So all of those, again, these are sort of like puzzle pieces put together after the fact. Where we're like, oh, yeah, all of that also wasn't happening. So between the developmental and then the presentation of the spasms, that's where we knew. Um, and like I said, that was right around the fifth month or so. And then we got into the hospital. And so you get into the hospital. She's diagnosed with infantile spasms. Um, they do an MRI. And is that when you got the, uh, now, how do I pronounce it again? Pachygyria. Pachygyria. I can never remember which emph <laughs> emphasis the syllable goes on. Um, yeah. <laughs> the other way around. Um, uh, so it was the MRI that diagnosed that. Explain what that diagnosis actually means. Yeah, so pachygyria, and I will probably just call it pachy from here on out. Perfect, um, love because that. Because A, yeah, it's easier and it sounds sort of fun and quirky and um, it makes me feel a little bit better about the, you know, the heaviness that it is. So pachy um, uh, is a cortical malformation. So that means that the brain is shaped differently. It's a, a different shaping of the um, cortices, which is that part that looks like a like a pink walnut that's on top of, of the brain. So um, pachy literally means big or wide gyre. Think of like pachyoderm is another term for like an elephant. It means big. Um, so pachygyria is wide gyre. So what that looks like on an MRI is those bumps that I just mentioned, they're really thick and broad. As opposed to having a bunch of these grooves, she has almost none. So it is still, to this day, it's diagnosed mostly on a visual um, confirmation through the MRI. So they take the MRI, you get a picture of the brain. Um, and from that, they, there's a couple different uh, types uh, of cortical malformations that go into it. So... Um, Pachy is a subtype of a broader category called lysencephaly. Now, lysencephaly is one that more people have heard of, but similar to the same, these are both just descriptive diagnoses. All they're doing is saying what the brain looks like. So they come with the MRI and then they, they confirmed it later with a different, a, a slew of genetic testing. Now there are several different genes that could lead to, um, a lysencephalic type disorder. She happens to have one, um, it's called KIF2A. She has a genetic mutation that didn't allow her neurons to fold back on themselves when they were growing, 
so what happens is your 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 neurons spread out when they hit your skull when you're in in utero they turn back and fold on themselves that's how you get those folds hers just went and stopped so that's you know what you see is what you get um and that is how you know now we know that it is a congenital disorder is that this happens right around like day 28 after conception this is first trimester this neuronal migration is happening um and so that was something that brought us peace later, knowing that there was really nothing we could have done to even know that this was happening until there was some symptomatic um, expression like infantile spasms. So you receive this diagnosis in the hospital. And what are you told in terms of what to expect for her life and for prognosis, I guess, in general? Yeah, um, it's interesting because it's still so misunderstood is the right word. It's it's just not understood. There's not it's not that we have wrong information. It's that we don't have enough information about it's, it. There's fewer than a thousand cases in the United States that we know of. Yeah, and that's um, so. Those numbers, um, as you know, with any rare disorder, I mean, they get updated and changed as soon as a new one comes in because it changes the rate. It's so rare that you get one new diagnosis and it changes the percentage amount in the total population. That's how how little there is. So when the doctor sat us down to say, "Hey, this is what she has," and we did the same thing you did, it's called what? How do you how do you say it again? And the prognosis he gave us was, you know, as far as lifespan, it could be anywhere from six months to sixty years. We just really don't know. And that's a really broad prognosis to give is six months to 60 years. So then our question is, well, how do we how do we prepare for this? If it could happen in six months or it could happen decades later, what what are we doing now? So um, and that's when he got got into uh, the developmental delays and that sort of stuff. So what what he had told us was between now and whenever, uh, you know, she happens to pass. Um, what she is going to need are things like a, aggressive therapy regimes because she will have global developmental delays, cognitive delays, behavioral delays, neurological delays, physical delays. Um, everything is not going to progress, not even just at a speed, um, but to the level that most other children uh, would experience. Everything will be so far back on that scale for you guys. Hi. This is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Since 1998, Cure Epilepsy has raised over $90 million to fund more than 280 epilepsy research grants in 17 countries. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. So with such a wide prognosis, you don't really know what to expect. There's no, it's so rare you don't have a roadmap how did you and Maggie decide to move forward with treatment, with goals, with parenting? It's interesting that you bring this up now is that in our, our most recent EEG, we just had a complete shift in how we view that exact question. Um, recently, Emma just got put on palliative care, and that is a, a shift in how you view things like goals directly. So at the time we get the diagnosis, um, Maggie and I both uh, work in healthcare. Maggie is a nurse. Uh, I am a therapist. So we're used to that sort of language of things like goals and assessments and that sort of stuff. It, that part wasn't as foreign to us, which I believe helped because we were able to get into that mindset. Um, you know, when you have a child 
a, say a, a neurotypical child and you're not thinking immediately, what are my goals for this child? But when you have a, an atypical child who needs help then, right then, um, you do have to think like that. And so the doctor, like I said, recommended an aggressive regime of therapies, um, uh, medications that we'd be starting right away. And we sort of fell in step with that. We're like, yeah, we will do you know, what you recommend. Obviously, I mean, you're the expert on this. You're the epileptologist at this level for epilepsy center um, on the West Coast. You know, we're, we're new to this. I know what epilepsy is, but I don't know what this is. And so um, we, we uh, went forward with his uh, recommendations on what to do for therapy and medications. We were fortunate um, that the medication that we chose to go with seemed to work uh, pretty much right away. There are a couple different that you can do with infantile spasms. Um, ACTH is usually a frontline one or Vigabitrin is another one. Those are both uh, medications. Um, and we went with Vigabitrin, which the side effects are a little bit uh, less scary than ACTH. So uh, we started with that medication. And uh, this is sort of the just the double-edged sword of this is that it looked like the medication was working um, and that we weren't seeing the spasms. We thought we saw a little bit of uh, developmental progress, especially coupled with the therapies. Um, and then just recently last year, uh, we found out those spasms had been still happening all along. They had just not been as uh, visual to us. They were um, you know, subclinical, subgraphical on the EEG. There, were, She had some movements, but we thought, yeah, like that's just her brain. That's She's going to have odd movements, just like we had at the very beginning. So it's this odd sort of recapitulation, this sort of eternal recurrence of this same thing over and over again. And so um, that brings you back to the palliative care. And so our ideas of goals now are much less about getting her to a place, you know, having her do therapy so that she can walk that she can talk it's sort of shifted from that that sort of projection type of a goal into her right now so how is she feeling now it's it's more about her comfort still thinking about the future but our goals are not six months a year down the road the goals are are right now with it so that was our our sort of shift with that is what are we doing for emma right now yeah what she has and what Adelaide had are entirely different. That said, so much of what you are talking about, be it the symptoms or be it the decisions that you're having to make, I can relate to 100%. I mean, almost to the T. I mean, regardless of, of the diagnosis, you know, what what we both went through are going through is rare and unique in and of itself for the most part. Um, where did you find that support? Because we all need it. We cannot, we cannot navigate medically complex parenting alone. So where did you find that support? Oh, um, in just all of the places, which sounds weird, and I'll qualify that in a second. The just what you mentioned, the Adelaide's uh, diagnosis and Emma's diagnosis are are so are worlds apart, really. Especially when you get down to how complex the human body is. They, I mean, they're really they would never they would never be on the same chart. But the needs and the pain and the fear that we have as parents and they as children are so similar um, that. You can find this support. Like I said, Maggie and I are both in healthcare. 
And so we know we've been trained on how to read research articles. Um, we know where to find them through my job as a professor. I have access to scientific journals that a lot of people don't have just due to the nature of my work. So exactly like the doctor told us not to do, we went to Google and we went straight into Pachygyra, you know, and, and there's just so little there that very quickly you're into other diagnoses, you're into other worlds because it's like this, you know, Pachygyra is related to lysencephaly. Okay, so we've already moved up. Lysencephaly is part of a broader range of neurological disorders, including something like cerebral palsy. Okay, so now we're out to another ring. And it, in each one of these areas, you can find people hurting, you can find people. Um, with, uh, you know, passion for this, you can find people who will sit there with you in that and go through it. So um, we went pretty quickly from the clinical side, like you said, you can get so wrapped up in that, so wrapped up in that stochastic nature of it, the, the, the statistics and the numbers. And then we went to social media because we're like, we need people. We, you know, the, the numbers are great, but I can't talk to a statistic. I can talk with people. So um, type in hashtag Pachygyria and there's like two or three accounts. Um, we were able to connect with one of them and then found out that they live in the same state as us, which was mind blowing. That were like, oh, I mean, it's still California is a pretty big state. So they're still like a country away from us. But they were our first family that we found. We're still friends with them to this day. And then, like I said, on social media, you have to do the same thing. From Pachydria, you get into epilepsy, and then you get into other communities. And that's where um, where we connected. So eventually, this comes full circle back to you. Um, and then through that, um, uh, like I said, like going to the epilepsy conference and going to other various conferences where you get to connect with real people um, through her uh, doctors. Um, when we got the diagnosis and in every, every meeting since, we tell all of her doctors, hey, if there are families who are going through this, please give them our information. Give them, here's my email, here is my my cell number. Um, they can call, email whenever they want to, whenever they're ready for it. But that is, I think, how you build this community. Because that's really what you have to do, is you will find people, but then you build that community. There is no sort of ready-made community for this. The diagnoses are so rare, and you have to sort of build this on your own. Um, and that's sort of what this is. That we have these sort of concentric circles of various communities that all, you know, help us and support us in various ways. Now, I have to let everyone know what a phenomenal writer you are, and point them to your social media as well as you've written a couple of posts for for me on my Inchstones blog, and they are just so beautiful and really speak to a lot of the emotional philosophical aspects that we run into as parents to medically complex children. And I think that you're, um, the way that you see Emma and the way that you process grief and acceptance in particular is just, is so incredible. How did you get to this place of understanding that, that grief would be a part of your life in this capacity and the acceptance and the continued acceptance of, of Emma's life not looking like what you thought it would. Oh, um, well, first off, I kind of have to blame you for the writing. Thing. <laughs> um, when you say, you know, how do we get to this place? 
Um, and this is something that I, I did talk, I, I believe, in one of the Inchon, um guest posts is um, I, I, I don't think that we're at that place, you know, because I don't think it's a place, really. Um, like you said, it's, it's this continuance. It's this continuing acceptance. So, you know, how we get to this understanding of what something like acceptance is, is not by arriving you know, by, you know, by getting to the destination, it is by continually arriving, you know, there is no sort of place to be. It's a way that you live. And it's something it's something that we have to choose every day, you know, and it's not that you like acceptance to me is you're not making a choice. Acceptance is choice. It's not like a thing you decide to do. It is decision itself. It's this, this, this process, this mode of existence um, that you inhabit in the world and in a really twisted roundabout way, this is something that everybody has to do, but having Emma and having her diagnosis is something that makes it so forefront for us. You know, it's not a back burner. I'll decide the kind of person I want to be. It's something that every day it's right there. I have to decide every day the kind of person I'm going to be because her life might depend on it. So, but I love this idea of it being this ongoing journey that acceptance and um, the, the, the grief, none of these are destinations. It is not a place. This is something that we are constantly working on and through day in and day out or, or hour by hour as the case may be, because I think we both know that sometimes a day is, is just way too much to process. So what does that look like for you in a specific moment? How, in what ways are you continuing to find acceptance or to live with the grief? Yeah. So I mean, you hit it, you know, right on the head, the idea that sometimes even a day is too much to process. It's that due to her condition, she's so dependent on us physically that everything she does, I have to do for her. You know, even if it's as simple as scratching her nose, um, you know, that's like she, I, I can, I've sort of learned how to read her signs um, that I know like, oh, that's, that's the nose itch face. And so like I can scratch her nose. And so it really is this moment to moment process of, okay, I need to go roll her over. I need to go, you know, scratch her back. I need to go do this. And it's, um, it is a way for me to to also better understand myself because I will see Emma laying there, you know, on, on the couch or in the bed. And I have to think, okay, if I had been in that position for half an hour, what would I want? Would I want to, you know, I would probably roll over. And so it's okay. I, I have to make decisions for her based off of how I would feel. And then she lets me know if it was the wrong choice. She's very, very, very clear. We talked about this ass earlier. Um, very clear if I did something wrong. Like, nope, it was not, you know, that's not what I wanted. I wanted this. Um, but that's really what Emma Emma's life is for us. It's so moment to moment um, that we have to make those decisions, you know, just just physically. And I haven't even, you know, that's not even talking about the larger medical decisions. I, I disagree with the, the sort of mentality that I don't have any other choice, that I'm doing this because I wouldn't, you know, because the, there's nothing else for me to do. I'm not doing this because I have no choice. I'm doing this because I have nothing but choice. And the choice is always going, to, for me so far, has always been for Emma. And that's something that I have to constantly remind myself is that at any moment, this is something that I could choose not to do. And 
there have been moments like i mentioned her willfulness at two in the morning there's moments where i'm like i'm staying in bed she's just but then i i have to remember okay if i were the one in the bed and i was coughing and i needed to roll over would i want emma to come help me and so there is this sort of reciprocity back and forth with that coupled with the fact that i just love her so dang much so that like makes those decisions easier it doesn't take away the choice it makes those choices clearer to me um so like i said on that that day-to-day um uh you know life like, like you said it really is down to the moment to moment every single decision i make um, like scheduling this interview, I had to schedule around, okay, this will be a time where I know Emma can be doing X, Y, and Z so that I can do this. Um, my professional career, um, you know, I schedule it around what Emma can do and so on and so forth. So it's really uh, what's helped me is just being so present, that constant presence of Emma. Um, like I said, doesn't, doesn't make the choices easier, makes them clearer, makes, you know, my understanding of what I need to do that much more focused. I love that so much because it is, it feels empowering. I, I think there is so much in being, you know, sort of an informal carer to our children or to a spouse or to any loved one where we feel so powerless and we are at the whim of their condition and its symptoms. But just the simple mindset shift of, this isn't something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do because I love them and that this is a choice that I get to make. That is so empowering in just that simple mindset shift. Um, and I think that's that's so much of what you have written about that I, I have connected to is those simple mindset shifts. And you wrote on one of my Inchstones guest blog posts, are we finding light in the dark places is there joy to make the pain worth it? And are we settled into our new normal? Have we reached acceptance? And then you answer these questions with yes, but also a sonorous no. It's so emotionally messy. Um, but when you write it, it feels so much clearer. Um can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, it's messy. Um, it's 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 clouded. It's convoluted. But I mean, that's if you take a look around at nature, take around at life, everything is squiggly. You know, there are no straight lines in that. And so I don't feel that it's it's any more messy than any messy than any other part of nature. Um, it's just that it doesn't fit in with how we would want things to be. And I think that's the the hardest part about this, you know, are, are we there yet type of mentality is that uh, it, it isn't this direct line from A to B. It's all over the place. So when I say, you know, have I pose a question to myself, which is a great writer's trick to make you sound fantastic as you give yourself a question, then answer it. Um, when I say yes, but also a sonorous no. Yeah, we've, you know, we have acceptance, but no, in that, like I spoke before, it's not a place that you reach. It's, you know, it's, it's this way that you live. It's this, this constant choice you make to accept. Um, and as I said, it's not like a choice. It is choice itself. You know, it's not that I have a purpose to help Emma. It's that I have purpose, purpose itself. And that is something that is going to drive and push me is the fact that I am just imbued with this purpose. The hard part about that is that there is no book about my purpose. 
um, or your purpose. That's something that you only get by living this purpose, by living this acceptance. It would be fantastic if I could write a blog post that say, here's five things you need to do in order to accept your child's you know, rare diagnosis. That would be five lies that I would be telling you is that that's not how it works. It's not that you, you, know, you do these things and then you're done. It's not a goals-based uh, understanding. It's a values-based understanding and that you decide what you value and then you live those values. I happen to really value Emma. And so I'm living in that space with her. You talked about having your own purpose and sort of we still have to have our own identities outside of being the the caregiver for our loved one. And so how have you been able to find that balance between being Bud, the the therapist, and um, the husband, and also the caregiver, and making a way for that all to work together. Yeah, this is something that um, I've struggled with from the beginning, and still to this day, it's something that I still have a hard time uh, balancing. Um, how I put it is that you know, once Emma was in the picture, she was in all the pictures, and so it was difficult for me in the beginning to see anything sort of outside that. I mean, I did work, but it was always, um, I, you know, I, I got to get through this day so I can get home for Emma. So it's finding that balance is I have to remind myself that I can't just be all about Emma. Cause then what am I giving to Emma? She already is Emma. So I'm reminding myself that being, you know, being able to give yourself for a person means being a whole person yourself. And so finding a way to fully understand and, and, you know, who I am. And that includes, you know, making time for my hobbies, making time for things that I'm interested in so that I can wrap those up and then bring those back to her. Um, for example, reading, I love to read. I am a painfully slow reader. Um, partially, I think due to the types of books that I like to read. Um, and just the fact that I, I just am a slow reader, but, what I love doing is I will spend time, I will be able to have time with just me in the book. And then that's what I can bring back to Emma. So it's not so much finding, you know, um, a break from Emma as it is, okay, be a person so that you can be a person for her. So I have to realize that spending time with myself, spending time by myself, isn't abandoning Emma. It's being a whole person, and that includes being that person for Emma, as well as people like Maggie and uh, my work. You know, it's 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 something that I have to do to fill myself so that I can help other people. If that makes sense, it makes perfect sense. You know, and I, you, you just you are a wealth of of advice. So, Bud, as both a father uh, to a medically complex child and also a mental health therapist. You sort of are in a unique position to give advice to parents who are in a similar position. And what advice would you give them? I've been hesitant to give advice. I'm happy that you're sort of giving me this space for this. That's one of the things um, that I struggle with a bit on social media is that I'm very, very into everybody's lives are their own lives. And so coming out with uh, you must do this or all parents feel this way, I'm really, really hesitant about that. I, I, it's something that I struggle with. It's something that I'm not, I don't feel qualified or prepared to do. Um, but there are a few things uh, that I would say that, again, advice or not, this is what we did and it was helpful for us. 
So it's I got two really sort of two parts to it. The first one is um, the the tagline is find your people. Is that this life? I mean, scientifically speaking, it is isolative just in the fact that nobody else has your child's uh, diagnosis, or or very few other people do. So it's it's isolated that way but then it doesn't have to be as we spoke earlier it doesn't have to be socially because pain is pain struggle is struggle um uh, you know this sort of continuum of i'm grieving more than you are is uh is not really a thing i mean it feels that way but like i said grief is grief and you can connect with another person's grief by recognizing that they're grieving as well so find your people um, in the beginning, the one of the best things to do is is buy your diagnosis because you might have you know more connections that way. At the very least, you'll have an icebreaker of like, hey, your kid has this, my kid has this. Um, but also something that we got stuck with a bit is you don't have to stay with that. Um, there seems to be this idea that well, if you know if your child has epilepsy, my child has epilepsy, we have to be friends, right? We have to be this, and you don't have to. Um, you don't have to force a friendship just based off a medical diagnosis, just like you have, you don't have to force friendships outside of medical diagnoses. So in your process of finding your people, get to know those people more than just a diagnosis, get to know the kids more than just a diagnosis, get to know yourself more than just your child's diagnosis. And then you will find people that you can, you know, connect with, you know, a community is more than just shared experiences. It's those shared values. And so getting to know that is what's going to help you find your people. That's advice one. Okay. Advice two, I would say is information might be power, but information is not peace. And especially in a world that pushes information so much, there's so much right at your fingertips. Um, you know, more than anyone, as far as we know, in the history of civilization, you have access to so much information. But in our experience, that constant need for more information was not bringing us peace. And especially in the rare community, it's not even really going to give you much direction. And so at some point in, in the journey, you will have to decide, do I need more in order to make a decision or do I not have to have this constant voracious, you know, devouring of information? Can I set that aside so that I can have peace and be with my child? So, you know, the information is not peace. I'm not saying to not look, but that's probably not where you're going to find rest. That's probably not where you're going to find peace. Because as as wonderful as social media is, as wonderful as, as science is and what we can do with it, your child doesn't live in a journal. Your child doesn't live in, a, in an academic paper. They live right here. They live right now. You know, you don't live on social media. You are living here. And so being able to balance that, um, that information, I think is going to be very meaningful for a lot of people. That idea that I can get information, but it's not a compulsion. You know, it's not, it's not the thing that is going to bring me peace. Well, and you can have all the information in the world and that doesn't necessarily equate to answers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Bud, you are a wealth of information. I will, uh, am obsessed with the women in your life. <laughs> Me too. Um, Me too. <laughs> you have to make sure you, you give them all the hugs um, to your Wonder Women. And um, I'm just so grateful to have had this opportunity to share this space with you and hopefully 
give people a, a new way of looking at their life with medical complexities and, and what grief and hope and um, acceptance can look like. Yeah, Kelly, I, I really, for somebody who prides themselves on being a word nerd, I cannot find any words to thank you, uh, not just for, for this opportunity today, but for everything you've done for my family. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's unfathomable. Always a treasure to talk with you, Kelly. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bud, for sharing your experiences and insights as father and caregiver to Emma. For 25 years, Cure Epilepsy has been funding patient-focused epilepsy research with the goal of finding a cure. Progress has been made, but there's still work to be done to lead us to that cure. If you would like to help us achieve our goal of a world without epilepsy, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Cure Epilepsy, inspiring hope and delivering impact. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual specific health situation.